Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's going so good, Chris. I have a really great story to share. I can't wait to hear it. What's, what's going on? So I went to a assessment yesterday, a new referral. Um, the child is two years old and I didn't know what to expect. I talked with mom briefly. She basically like, you know, he, he's not saying a lot of words. And so I went in to the assessment, started talking to mom and I look over on the table and I see my communication board already printed out on her table. And I'm like, oh my goodness, is this mom like using AAC? And this, this, she's never had, you know, another speech therapist come. She, this is like a first time parent. And I'm like, do I say something? Like, I'm going to say something. I just like, when's the right time? And then at one point she was like, we were talking about the words that he's been trying to say. And she's like, oh, oh, I actually downloaded your free communication board and I've been using it. Watch how he uses it. And so she like sits down and she's like, ready, set. And then the the little guy touches go on the communication board. And she's like, go. And I'm like, oh, is this the best family ever? It just totally made my day because oftentimes with young children, it's a, it's a hard sell to sell AAC. Um, even low tech supports, oftentimes parents are like, what is this? I don't know about this. So to go into an assessment where mom was already had been on my website, had downloaded the communication board, I was just super pumped. You know, to me, that is a sign of how things are changing. You know, five years ago, what are the chances someone would come in with a communication board and already understand how to start to to model on it, right? And so here is this is the maybe the first case where this has happened to you, but I would I would imagine just projecting here, where are we going to be five years from now? Is like every parent going to be coming in, or or you know, eighty percent kind of knowing this already? You know, because the information is so widely available about what to do when your when your child is not necessarily using verbal speech as their primary form of communication. Yeah. And it was just like, it was, it was, it made me feel really proud of my website actually, because I felt like here's a parent who went on my website. Obviously she ended up calling me to do an assessment, but you know, had she not done that, she still would have been ahead of the game. Right. So she still was able to watch my videos and read my blogs. And it was just so cool because that was the whole purpose of my online business was to say, okay, I can't, I can't work with every single family, but how can I have a broader reach with the content that we create and, you know, all the things that we're doing online. So it was just such a, such a great feeling to see that, but also to think, wow, like I really, you know, was able to teach that without, she, she could learn that without me, essentially. She could learn that by watching my videos and reading my blogs. And so it was so cool to see that kind of in action. So the phrase that I like to think about there is called duplicating yourself. You duplicated yourself, right? I mean, right now, you, uh, whoever's listening to this, they're listening to you, but the real Rachel made alive in person, flesh and blood is might be working with a family right now. And you've got the YouTube channel and you've got your website and you've got all these different uh, ways of, of clones of yourself out there uh, doing the work that people can then listen to. And, and of course, you're not the only one. There are tons of other people that are doing that as well, which is why I think we are seeing the needle move, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, it was a good day in the AAC world for me. <laughs> oh, and I, I also think it's just important to start having conversations with families earlier about AAC because sometimes it's a hard topic to broach. Um, you know, and I, I think it's important though to say, listen, there's other ways that we, there's other tools that we can use to help teach your child language and communication um, as their speech develops and catches up. Mm-hmm. So Rachel, tell us about the interview for today. Really excited. We have Catherine Dorney on. So some of you might know Catherine from the Facebook group AAC for the SLP as she's a moderator on that group. And honestly, she has such a pulse on the research in AAC. I feel like she's constantly responding to people's questions and you know commenting with citing research articles. She's also in charge of the very comprehensive files section of that group. Um, so I'm really excited to showcase all of her work today because she um, you know, comes on and talks about her own research. And we just have a really thoughtful discussion about AAC, um, you know, presuming potential in children who are using AAC, um, and really how to foster an organic communication development with kids. Um, so I'm really excited to, to have her on finally on the podcast to talk about all her amazing work.
Well, I know I've been talking week after week here about ATIA, but this was another thing that happened at ATIA is I got to actually meet Catherine Dorney at ATIA. There was an AAC for the SLP sort of meetup, you know, where everyone kind of gathered, uh, not at the bar, it was like, you know, right outside the bar, you know. Um, and so I got there and uh, and I got to meet her and she's like, hi, I'm Catherine Dorney. I was just on the podcast. I was like, yes, I know you. Rachel interviewed you. I can't wait. I haven't listened to it yet. So I can't wait to listen to it. But I got to meet her face to face. Amazing. I know. It's so funny when you meet people in real life that you kind of know online. And I feel like that oftentimes happens at conferences. And it's just so fun when you get to like, you know, give somebody a hug who you've known for years online. <laughs> so speaking of giving people things, <laughs> let's talk about our Patreon. So we've been giving this podcast for two years and people have been giving their time. Luke and Michaela especially have been spending a lot of time, uh, you know, doing all the show notes and put, making the audio sound great, especially mine, because you know I've had issues in the past with the audio quality of my recording sometimes. And Michaela is the one who wrestles with all of that and makes it sound as good as it possibly can be. Um, and so one of the things that we've launched recently is this Patreon, where people can give whatever they can give. We are asking for $8 a month, uh, that which... I guess translates to $2 per episode uh, to kind of keep the podcast rolling, pay the people for their time and also pay for what we hope to do is like future upgrades. You know, what else can we do and, and provide to the community besides the, the podcast? Yeah. And you guys are always telling us how much you love our podcast, which we honestly, like nothing makes me happier than getting emails, uh, direct messages from you guys saying, I love the podcast. It's changed my practice. Um, thank you so much for, for this amazing resource. And so we just want to keep on giving. So please, if you haven't joined our Patreon, go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech to join. We have a lot of amazing new members um, that keep joining every day. And once we get to 50, we're going to open up another tier of the Patreon where we create additional content for you guys. Um, and it can be specific to the, to the things that you guys want to see and what you guys want more of. So I'm really excited to, to keep building out this community. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, you know, at, at this point, our podcast, we talk to you guys, um, but we don't hear what you guys have to say back unless you guys, you know, send us an email or a message. Um, I'm really excited about creating a membership group because I want to build out that community and I want to have conversations with you guys about your practice, your ideas. Um, I think we can all crowdsource together and we can all elevate each other in the AAC sphere. So I'm really excited. Um, and I think the Patreon is what is going to lead us down that road. So again, go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech and you can join us. You can also get to the Patreon link by going to the other website that we like to promote, which is bit.ly slash TWTpod. And when you go there, it'll take you to our Facebook. There'll be a link to our Facebook group where I recently posted a video of my family. Did you see that, Rachel? I loved that video. I was laying in my bed Sunday morning and I'm like, what is this video? And I saw, I saw Chris and his amazingly beautiful, cute family in the car. And I'm like, what is this? I have to watch this right now. And it was awesome. It was you and your awesome family being hilarious and super funny. Um, so definitely go to our Facebook group and check out that video because if that doesn't entice you to join Patreon, I don't know what will. So without further ado, let's listen to Rachel's interview with Catherine Dorney. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Catherine Dorney. Catherine, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. You are a big name in the AAC world, and I'm excited to have you on. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, I'm originally from New York City. I went to undergrad at City of University of New York at Queens College. And then I went to master's program at Hofstra University on Long Island. And I worked in every borough in New York City except for Staten Island and then proceeded to um, go out to Long Island to a self-contained separate school for preschoolers that I was there for about 13 or 14 years before I decided um, I, it was time for a change. And then I've been living in North Carolina for the last six years. Amazing. A different, different weather. Not a little bit. It's not like as cold as New York. I feel like right. a little more mild. And I don't have to shovel sunshine. 
I love that. I'm stealing that for California. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm, I know you guys are snub, shoveling snow. I'm, I'm shoveling sunshine over here. <laughs> I enjoy it down here, yeah. Amazing. So what spurred the move from New York to North Carolina? Well, uh, it's complex, but I'll, I'll say it short. I always wanted to pursue my PhD, but life happened, and um, I had a, I have a, a great life. But then um, Hurricane Sandy happened on Long Island and I lost my place. Mm. So the ocean came into my apartment and it was kind of like, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to stay here and continue or do what you really want to do? And I decided to do what I really wanted to do. I love that. I love that. And it's like sometimes when things that feel, you know, so oppressive or traumatic sometimes spur something different in your life. And I feel like that's, it sounds like exactly what happened to you. Um, it's like a, you kind of have a fork in the road, right? And you're like, okay, I could go, you know, try to rebuild something or I could try something different. We don't always have the courage to try something different. Um, but it's these, these things that happen to us where we're kind of like, okay, now what? Um, so it sounds like that's something that happened to you. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about your research because you're doing amazing research in our field. And I have to say, Catherine, you are, you're, I've known your name for a while. Um, you are the queen of AAC research. I feel like you have a, a pulse on the research more so than, than anybody else I know. Um, you're always like responding, you know, on social media groups about, you know, citing research. I just feel like I'm so impressed with your knowledge of the research. Well, thank you. Um, well, a lot of that comes from, I mean, interest, but also being a PhD student, your job is to know the research. And I'm passionate about it. Um, I really do enjoy digging in and, you know, asking questions and then going find out, well, what do we know so far? And AAC research is, is really interesting to me because if you kind of look at the history, I mean, there was a point that researchers had to demonstrate that the students or the, the individuals and the adults could actually learn. So even mm-hmm. if the earliest re- research is just showing that these individuals can learn. And what I also find interesting is reading research from the 90s when I was in grad school going, okay, this was happening, but this wasn't presented to me. And I find that some people are still asking the same questions that we answered back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So, and again, because of research and research has different philosophies as you know, as you learn going into a PhD program and you have to be true to yourself, but you have to read everything. Mm-hmm. And in master's programs, I mean, we're taught to read the research, and be critical of the research, but I just feel like with AAC, you have to take a little from a lot of different places. Mm, and synthesize, um, right? And I, because I just also think just, I mean, this could be any research is that clinically, I think in many ways we're ahead of the research, mm-hmm. but the way that research kind of occurs, it takes time. Right. So when we pose out, well, we don't, you know, research doesn't say that, I feel like, well, yet, it doesn't say it yet. And just because research doesn't say it, that doesn't mean it will and will not happen. Research doesn't say, you know, you have to perform the action to know if it's true or not. So just because there's no research doesn't mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. It's all that other, um, the three tiers of em- empirical based practice that we have to rely on. And I think when I read, and interestingly enough of the AAC, I mean, I'm reading that literature but I'm also relying on all that literature we have from language development. Mm-hmm. So, and I think for me, that's what I rely on. I mean, the device is the device, but the principles of language development has always been there. We just have to look for different research that kind of pinpoints the language aspect of AAC. Which is something that we always talk about, right? It's like AAC therapy is language therapy. And so it's like, we, you can't really you know, we don't need to piece them out in so many ways. We really need to figure out ways to integrate them. Um, And I love that you made that point about, you know, relying on language development research, because I feel like a lot of times we put AAC in this separate category that it doesn't need to be in, in a lot of ways. Right. I I mean, the interestingly, what initially brought me into PhD was non-symbolic communication. That's always been my interest. And anybody that's ever worked with me kind of knows that. But 
initially was coming in going, oh, let's look at gesture research. Um, you know, what can we do for um, some children that need to learn to use gestures? And maybe we have to start that earlier. Maybe we have to teach gestures earlier. Mm -hmm. But I actually, reading language research, realized going, wow, again, we're putting so much pressure on these individuals that as communication partners, we can do a lot better attributing meaning to the non-symbolic communication that they're already using. Mm -hmm. We have this thing that it has to look a certain way, but I think we're undervaluing the communicative exchange that already exists because, you know, these individuals, children, adults, humans are communicating with us. And I don't think we necessarily have to seek immediately to um, accept one over the other, mm -hmm. you know, and again, reading my research is like, wow, you know, when I did that case study, I was like, these children are communicating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking back in my clinical experience the last 20 years that they were, these children were communicating, but in the way that they could. Mm -hmm. So if there's no reason to believe that this child cannot do it in another way, why are we penalizing a child for not having yet that ability to communicate more conventionally? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it's really not accepted or we don't want to encourage that we want to encourage this but i'm like wow you know what if we want to address autonomy and friendship we have to address initially is that self-respect and that self-awareness that yes you know um any everybody has something to contribute to the interaction to the classroom to the lesson yeah and the way that they can yeah, and I think that oftentimes that goes overlooked because a lot of times we're, everybody is focusing so much on the language or the lack thereof, and there's so much nonverbal communication happening um, that we can, like you said, start attributing meaning to, um, and that's our job. That's our job is to, to attribute meaning and teach the language. Um, so I, 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 children are going to jump to symbols. I mean, the child hasn't, you know, the child's not going to jump and start using symbols in a day or two or in a week or two. Mm -hmm. And if, to me, if it's truly their communication, I want them to go through the steps of learning. And even though, you know, the idea of that, it's just not, oh, I have to select that symbol. But it goes back again to that attributing meaning to what they're communicating. And there, you know, we can jump to that link to vocabulary that's available, but, you know, it, it, it takes time. And I think that's a, a part of, research sometimes when I read that um, I don't know if everybody else has that chance to really read and look into going, wow, this research happened over, let's say, 28 sessions. Mm -hmm. And they targeted one skill, but it took 28 sessions. And that individual was provided with an intervention that was three hours a day or yeah. three hours a week. Mm -hmm. And then we look at what's being provided, if you call it the real world, you know, mm -hmm. or the therapeutic world at this point that I think, you know, it, it makes me think, you know, like what kind of information are we extrapolating and what are we missing that, yeah, you know. And also, you know, some students that participated in that study, maybe they were selected for a reason because they might be able to learn quick mm -hmm. or quicker than others. But again, you know, research can last, you know, 38 sessions, 38 weeks. They're trying to prove a point and I get it, and that's the science of it, but then we have to be able to go back and go, wow, that really worked. And then as clinicians, I mean, I know, I'm like, why isn't this child progressing more? Why is it, but they, they're telling me it should be like this. And I think we have to realize, you know, there's missing points that I think that's why we, again, we need more of the research. And I'm one for, that advocates more for implementation science than maybe more controlled studies. I want it more, if you will, in the messiness and the wonderfulness of the world in the classroom. You're speaking my language, Catherine. We need more implementation science, um, you know, because it's, that's what clinicians need, practicing in the real world. It is messy. And I think that guidance in those areas. Um, you brought up a really important point of it takes time. I feel like everybody wants outcomes, right? Myself included. Um, and we think it's something something like symbolic representation. We think like, oh, we'll start teaching it and like, bam, a kid's got it. Um, or if they don't have it, maybe it's the system. 
are you, do you experience that people who, you know, because symbolic representation isn't happening, sometimes they blame it on the technology? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily blaming it on the technology. Um, I don't know. Cause, um, sometimes I feel like I'm reading it that they're thinking that, Oh, the, the child's not getting it or the individual's not getting it. And I find myself like suggesting more to versus the system is kind of like overall. I mean, I guess the system meaning the device, but it really right. is the system of the device, the type of implementation, the environment, mm -hmm. you know, that whole transactional process to be reviewed. And, mm -hmm. or also, and when you're dealing with transactional theory, you're also thinking of the expectations or the knowledge and the belief system of the person that's implementing and or or the group of people that's implementing mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah it's 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 a combination of things which again brings in that messiness because when we do an intervention and we're doing language intervention with AAC um we're not just working on one thing Mm -hmm. and you know, it's great that we have the, the science and the research can, can tell you that that one thing works. But when we come back, you know, that one thing works in one scenario. But what happens when you add something else to it? Because mm -hmm. you can study these things individually, but when they come together mm -hmm. in what, what a transaction and what a human interaction is, that's to me where I want to see where the magic happens not in these isolated situations. So, you know, brought me down the road of a case study, like what is even happening? Like what happens in this situation when, when um, in the, the transaction of that classroom-based system was, well, you know, we have a classroom that's historically provided PECs to students in a separate school that typically only provided PECs and they mm -hmm. was a school for children with a lot of multiple disabilities. Mm -hmm. So the, you're thinking of access and knowledge and the expectation that a child had us go through some procedures before they were provided with more language. So wonderfully that the school agreed to participate in a larger research study and again, bringing back that vulnerability of allowing people to come in and, and view that like, you know, what are the expectations mm -hmm. and, um, and seeing that, yeah, for people that were, were taught in a way that, yes, these children should be requesting, that there was a great focus on it, and they were willing to use core vocabulary mm -hmm. um, that that school, one of the speech therapists put together a board. And the interesting thing happened about it is that, yes, the focus was on requesting, and these students learned to use core vocabulary to request. But to me, the other interesting part of it was just the learning of what they were attributing meaning to, what was important to the, the adults in, in that classroom. And, but to me, I kind of looked at it more going, wow, these children are communicating the only way they can. And right now it seemed that it was crying, screaming, mm -hmm. butting. And I'm sure, I mean, we all were, I mean, I've worked in many preschools. It's, they're loud, loud, loud rooms. But then realizing, wow, if the child is, requesting and they're and they're provided with that that's fantastic but it, as hard as it is for some people that these children are protesting because they don't like your idea they don't want to do what you want them to do but i i would hate to think that we're invalidating someone going wow no you can't cry right now because we're doing circle time yeah it was just again an, um, a learning experience and again that was those three classrooms we don't know what the world is like but it was really interesting kind of going going what is happening what is mm -hmm. happening in these classrooms as any individual who just learned how to do core vocabulary and tribute meaning through these professional development is just the steps for them to get comfortable and going like how does this apply Mm -hmm. How is this implemented in my life as a classroom teacher coming in as a speech therapist? So it was that I really, really definitely enjoy just getting a snapshot of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the study you're referencing, it just came out in 2019, correct? Mm -hmm. And it was with Karen Erickson? Yes. Yeah. So what spurred that, you know, collaboration and what, you know, spurred, we need to, we need to do a study on this. 
Well, um, Karen Erickson is my academic advisor at mm -hmm. UNC at Chapel Hill. And one of the requirements for at UNC at Chapel Hill is that you have to do a pre-dissertation. So in a sense, you do a dissertation before. So um, that's the end of your second year. And being a student and also being a research assistant on Project Core and seeing and having a history of working with children with autism for, for 20 years. And I didn't think there would be any concern about presenting core vocabulary to children with autism. And then at that time, it seemed a lot of people were concerned about it. Mm -hmm. So when I had the opportunity to present, you know, to present the idea to Dr. Erickson saying, well, I want to look at the children with autism in this particular school the preschoolers with autism and she, she was all for it. And I'm like, you know, so mm -hmm. that's how that stemmed from getting to the field notes of just those three classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's interesting to me because I think that there's a lot of discussion about core vocabulary specific to children with autism mm -hmm. um, and how maybe it's more challenging. Maybe, you know, some clinicians say this, it doesn't work. That's not where I start. Um, what are your thoughts after kind of diving into the research and also, you know, doing research yourself. What are your thoughts on core vocabulary and children with autism? To me, language is language. So I don't see a reason why a child with a specific diagnosis, whether it's autism to um, a syndrome with, a, with different letters or numbers or whatever you want to call it, it's language and they're part of our community. Mm -hmm. So Overall, I don't, I don't see the need for specific vocabulary for specific individuals, again, because they're part of our community. Mm -hmm. And the core vocabulary, it is, it's the high-frequency words. And for order for aided language input to be more successful, the adults that are interacting with the children are going to be using symbols on that child's system that represents what they say so they can demonstrate to the children, like, these are the words I'm using the adults in their lives, and I, I'm speaking most, you know, to children, but this would apply to older um, adolescents and teenagers and adults that are just um, acquiring symbolic language. That to me, it's, you're already speaking those words. And without that aided language input, you're actually using the most abstract symbol there is, and it's speech, because you're teaching that child mom. What does mom, mm, uh, mm, have any relation to the woman that's caring for that child. It's very abstract. Mm -hmm. So when we deal with that abstract of the symbols, it's the same thing. And even if you look at some of these symbols, like the PCS symbol for table, that or, or for juice for that matter. So to me, it's, it's providing that opportunity with core vocabulary, two things. Providing the vocabulary that the people in the, in the shared vocabulary for that shared community. So the child will learn language. And the other part to, to me for core vocabulary is that you can teach to intent. Okay? Mm -hmm. Nouns don't represent the communicative intent of an individual. Core yes. vocabulary does. Mm -hmm. So the intent, the meaning of the words, the, you know, the not or the mm -hmm. get and the want. To me, that's more intent. That To me, that can be mapped, more mapped on to non-symbolic communication in that moment because of the long, the person's using non-symbolic communication. We're interpreting what they're saying. Not until mm -hmm. the person says it themselves, we're interpreting mm -hmm. what they're saying. So, and I person, oh, I should add number three. This is why I like about it. Of presenting them more vocabulary. The child, the individual gets to choose what words they get to say. We don't mm -hmm. get to designate it because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my sister didn't pick what her daughter's first word was. Mm -hmm. She came out with it, you know? So to me, it kind of provides that, you know, they're going to be able to say what they want to say. And we can attribute meaning and the intent of what that child is saying that, oh, you want, or you want to get that, or, you know, you not like that, or a smile that's like. And again, that idea of what that like and that want or that not is going to look like is going to be different for every child. But I still believe that we have to be teaching the child the symbolic equivalent of what they're communicating. 
much more than the vocabulary that adults want that child to learn. Mm -hmm. And to me, I mean, you know, call it out, it's autonomy. To me, it's kind of a human rights thing that, you know, I want that child to pick the words that, to use the words and develop it on their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's becoming a communicator. And that's really our job as clinicians, right, is not to try to teach some set of words that we think a child should know or should use, but really take what they're already saying to us and attach language to it. Um, so I think that especially when we're thinking about emergent communicators, um, they are showing us in a lot of ways through non-symbolic you know, symbolic communication what they want to say. Um, you know, we have to be intrinsically motivated to communicate. And these kids, uh, I, nothing aggravates me more than when someone says they're not motivated by anything. I'm like, they have to be at least motivated to not do something, right? Like, so it's just like, really as clinicians, figuring out what is the underlying motivator, um, what is the underlying communication that's already happening, and then trying to figure out ways to attach language to that. And like you said, the, it's the high frequency words with intention. Nouns inherently, you know, don't really offer a lot of intention um, and pragmatic function beyond, you know, I guess potentially commenting or requesting um, at a single word level. But um, I think it's so important that, you know, you're talking about really, it's not our job to teach words that we think a child should know. It's our job to interpret what's already happening communication wise and then attaching the language to it. And, and providing them with the, the access to potentially communicate what they want to communicate. Um, but I was thinking that, which goes back to AAC research and why, thank you, that it's connected to language research because what I'm describing is linguistic mapping and Paul Yoder and um, Stephen Warren talked about that oh, in the late 90s, early, you know, early 2000, um, that, you know, we naturally do do this. So to me, it's providing that, those opportunities and just more comprehensive communication intervention that, mm -hmm. you know, in, which continue and provide that, you know, that access to education and provide that, that student with, you know, the literacy that they need. Mm -hmm. Continued education. I just, I don't see it being very needed to be very piecemealed. Just to play devil's advocate here, what would you say to a clinician, because this has happened to me multiple times in my own clinical practice, they're just not getting core vocabulary. They don't get it. But I don't want to work on that because they just don't get it. They're just being random. They're hitting the device randomly. There's no intention behind it. They just don't understand it. What would you say to somebody that's saying that? I would guess I would ask them how they're measuring it. Mm -hmm. How are you measuring that? Like... You know, what do you mean that they're not getting it? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Again, how are they measuring it? How much time have they been learning it? Mm -hmm. What's the environment that they're using it? What are you doing when the child is selecting those symbols? So mm -hmm. to me, I think I would be asking more questions versus necessarily giving them the answer, just encouraging them to kind of think out the process. And to me, more importantly, like, what are you measuring? Mm -hmm. Are you measuring just that symbolic output or are you looking at other things that could be happening? And even like, you know, the learning process, like, um, you know, something like, oh, we're doing activities and the child's not doing symbols. I mean, could be like, well, maybe you're not talking about something that the child wants to talk about. Uh, amen. <laughs> you know, maybe not everybody wants to talk about, you know, Tom Sawyer during the literacy lesson, but, you know, if, again, knowing, you know, I kind of accept that the individuals know their students, that they're going to relate it to that student to make it meaning for them and bring it back to background knowledge or the picture and make it interesting because we're mm -hmm. not going to communicate. We don't think the topic's interesting. And if we're content with what we have, we're not going to be necessarily requesting anything. I can just be like, no, nah, I'm good. You know, mm -hmm. I'm kind of good. But I, to me, I just think um, I would wind up probably asking more questions because I feel like I would need more information mm -hmm. to kind of provide some suggestions, if you will. 
Yeah, and I think that's a very common scenario with um, clinicians who maybe specialize in AAC or doing AAC work who understand the research. They know about core vocabulary and its power and how important it is, um, but they're not getting the team buy-in. They're not getting parent buy-in or teacher buy-in. Um, and so I think that's a really great suggestion. Ask more questions. Get more information. Um, kind of lead somebody down the path that you, you know, want them to eventually kind of understand um, because I think that it is hard um, kind of when you don't, I think we're in like a fast outcomes type of culture, right? Like we want immediate success. We want to see you know, amazing things happen right away, instant gratification. And so when we don't see maybe the progress that we want with core vocabulary, um, you know, people sometimes are quick to say like, it's not working or like, why are we doing this? We're not seeing the outcomes, um, you know, but it does take time. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of investigation into what is a child actually motivated by and how can we, you know, teach that in really motivating ways so that it will eventually transfer and generalize to spontaneous communication. But it also goes back to what are you measuring? Yeah. How are you measuring it? Because, you know, working with somebody that works with students with significant disabilities, the child's not going to learn it in that quarter. Mm -hmm. very, very possible. But the way that our current, let's say, special education system works is that we're taking data every time we see that child. And it might be small increments if you're following a naturalistic intervention and you're encouraging development versus a performance. Mm -hmm that it, it will take time. And I think that's kind of understanding the limits of our measurement system, because yes, you're writing, because you have to fill out that form on that, for that IEP that it has to be measured. And for, I think some clinicians going, wow, it's been four sessions that the child's been performing. But to me, we can't measure what's going on in their brain. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, we, we want to see these external behaviors that can help us measure things but there's other things going on mm -hmm. so many things sometimes and we have this you know innate focus for this population to work on expressive communication but there's other parts of communication that is receptive language and non-symbolic communication and everything else that it's a whole package mm -hmm. you know um I'm actually reading um, a research article now that talks about that truly is, is language really multimodality or is it these labels that we've applied and multimodality communication may be more applicable for older children, but less for younger children because children are learning vocabulary and grammar and everything actually all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that idea of going, oh, we have to present vocabulary, then we have to teach grammar. No. Those words are helping, hearing those words um, through us and applying it to AAC and demonstrating these connections, these children are learning all that information from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's really, what was the opposite of multimodality? Unitary? That, right. it, that it really is coming together um, at the same time. So I think, again, has to encourage people to think about what are we talking about? We're talking about language. Yeah. And I rely on, um, I rely on the research and the language developing research, and it has been helpful and successful in my 20 years of clinical experience because I, I see the same patterns. Mm -hmm. The same patterns. Um, I don't necessarily see that children with significant disabilities have to be completely taught in such a completely different way than everybody else. I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of research, what are some areas that you would like to see more research in? I know you talked about implementation science, uh, but what, like if you could have your research wish list, like what are some areas that you think we need more research in? We'll be here another 40 minutes. That's uh, true. You know what, what I see, and I'm going to put this out because, you know, I have my own, but I also, I'm going to put out stuff that, again, being an administrator of AAC for the SLP, that I, I see people looking for answers is providing, um, you know, how to provide the right symbols and in the interaction for children with cortical vision impairment. Um, mm -hmm. I see that a big, I mean, there is, to my knowledge, no research on this. And 
which and then I'll lead into more research is I want researchers to take in all the children because there is this tendency to exclude children that have CDI, have vision issues, have hearing issues, have mm-hmm. some behavior issues, have significant motor issues. And mm-hmm. even in the AAC research that I read, the kids that are participating in the research already have symbolic communication in some way or not. Mm-hmm. So to me would be, you know, I want the, the research to be on children with significant disabilities that have hearing and vision and cortical vision impairments and can't use their hands and, and that, are, that are, they shouldn't be excluded. They are the group of individuals that are out there and they should be included. Um, I would like to see uh, more research about um, just the generalization. Mm, yes, I would love that too. Even, so even when reading the research, what generalization is defined in research Depending on the researcher, the definition of generalization is different. Hmm. Um, my definition of generalization is that, I wouldn't say my, I mean, the one I rely on is that the child demonstrates this knowledge in a context that we're never taught. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I would like to see more research that, you know, yeah, that child was provided an intervention to perform something in this study, but wow, they, you know, they generalized it. They could do this without, you know, in another whole completely different context mm-hmm. with different people. Mm-hmm. And they weren't instructed in this new, this, this new um, context, but they kind of learned it. And it does take, it can take longer initially. You know, mm-hmm. I don't see the rush to whatever they learn the fastest. Um, I, I, that doesn't really hold as much value to me versus like, wow, what can they do with that knowledge on their own in real contexts? And that's like, that's the whole point, right? It's like, that is the whole point. You know? <laughs> exactly. And it's just like, I, I can completely relate with what you're saying because, you know, we oftentimes write these goals across three communication partners, across three different settings. We know we try to embed into our goal um, practices that we know increase the odds of it generalizing. But what I'm not seeing oftentimes in the cases that I'm working on, the teams I'm helping with, you know, whether that be school or home or whatever, I'm not seeing us taking in that data, right? Like I want to know more so than anything else, what a child is saying spontaneously, unprompted. Um, And so I'm trying to constantly encourage teams you know, that's what I want tracking of, you know, because I know within specific contexts, kids can learn language. Um, but is that transferring to a brand new context? Um, and that's what's most for- exciting for me as a clinician. Um, so I'm constantly telling parents, you know, I want you, if they say something out of the blue, write it down. Um, and I love, especially when children say things that maybe aren't grammatically correct or don't make complete sense, because I know that it's spontaneous. I'm like no one ever taught you to say that specifically specifically in that context, but, you know, you said that, and that was, you know, spontaneous and organic, um, and that's what's really exciting as a clinician, because that's really what we're working towards, right? We're really trying to get kids just having a thought and then sharing that with the world. I, I think, I agree. I think that's one part of it, but I also think, you know, we want children to, to be comp- comprehending also, and mm-hmm. I just, seems like um, my new delve into research is the focus is on expressive communication much more than it is receptive communication, which goes back to the other thing we've been talking about is measurement. It's much Mm -hmm. easier to measure expressive communication versus receptive. So, you know, I think if we can, as clinicians and communication partners, is, you know, I get it that you... we're looking for the expressive communication, but we really, I mean, don't we want it all? I mean, don't we encourage another um, fellow human being to be able to understand what others are saying to them? And, mm-hmm. and it's not just for the communication part of it. I mean, it's the opening up the door for education, for literacy. Um, how far are you going to go in reading if you don't understand language? Mm-hmm. So if we can put that person on the steps of comprehending, you know, spoken language, 
that you know we put them on the on the, on the steps to moving to literacy, emergent literacy, and conventional literacy. And as educators, if you're in the schools, that importance of literacy, whoa, even more so for an individual with AAC to be able to communicate, but also just think about the doors that can be open is that their language comprehension improves to be able to access more books, Mm -hmm. access more of their education. Because we know reading, reading comprehension is related to academic performance. So if you can't read, or you can only read it at word level, but you can't read the texts, you know, I think you're going to be, you're just naturally going to be limited. I mean, we have many U.S. citizen adults that, that can't read and might be able to speak to this. So mm-hmm. added on another complex layer for this individual that um, is communicating via AAC and they can't read and write. I mean, mm-hmm. so to me, I think it's, I look at it as the, I'm looking for the whole package, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we should all be striving for, right? <laughs> I, I want it all. I mean, we can't tackle it all every day. Right. But, you know, I think if we, um, for ourselves, if we create that environment, I, I like to think that um, we can, our energy will, will feed others. Mm-hmm. We'll do that. Catherine, there is something that we always ask the people on this podcast, and it's if you had a billboard that every SLP could see, what would it say? Um, um, attribute communicative meaning and demonstrate a symbolic equivalent. Ooh, I like it. It's a long billboard, but uh, I'm into it. <laughs> So that's the, the, the crux of, or, I mean, or more simply, you know, provide instruction, teaching the child to say what they want to say, to communicate what they want to say, Mm -hmm. what they want to write, what Mm -hmm. they want to read. You know, I mean, I just think we, we can provide that. Versus that idea that the, the children have to say what we want them to say. I, I don't know. Going back to, I think you, you used the word motivation. That I think that could be a great way to encourage more motivation. Like, wow, you know, I have a say in this. Mm-hmm. I have a say in this. And I'm going to touch the symbols that I want to communicate. And they're going to attribute meaning to the symbols that I'm selecting. And... You know, I, I like to think that. And again, it's keeping the communication exchange. You know, mm-hmm. you could touch it, you know, talk and touch an icon or hand over an icon and receive something. But then that interaction could end. But I like, you know, to say that the child could um, select, you know, indicate that they want something. And, but juice, sorry, you can't get juice for the next 24 hours. I mean, we're <laughs> yeah. to give them the cook. We're going. I'm going to give that child the juice, yeah. You know, or the hug, or you know, or I'm I'm going to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the interaction that mm-hmm. kind of goes around with it, and I, I um, and I don't really see that very different for for different populations. Mm-hmm. Not in my clinical experience. And I think that, you know, nobody likes being told what to do. Nobody likes being told what to say. And so, you know, thinking about our role as a communication partner, um, it's really as an ally to these students and to these you know, individuals that we're working with to help them um, not say what we think they should say or what their parents want them to say or what society thinks they should say, um, but really helping them truly have the voice that they deserve and that they, you know, want to communicate with us. So I think that's a important message that I'm really excited that we were able to, to touch on today. I mean, it goes back to if they're in school, they need the vocabulary that's going to be able to access that curriculum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that idea that they're in no matter what class school they're in. I mean, they're ac- they should be accessing math, science, social studies, literacy, mm-hmm. and we need that vocabulary to be able to, to access that, to learn about it. 
I love Yay. it. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom and expertise. I'm really excited um, to share all of your work with the world and our listeners. Um, for people who are interested in following your work or contacting you, how can they reach out? Well, I, it seems a lot of people know how to reach me on Facebook because I get messengered a lot by, it's actually pretty cool. Like everybody all over the world messages me. It's crazy. Um, I do have a professional Facebook page. It's Catherine Dorney, M-A-C-C-S-L-P. Mm-hmm. That I do for fun. I used to be the person that message, that posted all this information about education and child advocacy on my personal page. (laughs) And then I went, wow, yeah, that's because 80% of my friends are educators. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it for fun to everybody else. So that's another way of seeing what I tend to post. As being a PhD student, I don't have as much time to read and share as I would like to, Mm because, you know, I have other, but I'm still reading and I try and share articles of interest. I just don't always have the time to really summarize them. And I know that I recognize that's hard for clinicians because, you know, we don't have the access to all the articles that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, if you guys who are listening are not a part of AAC for the SLP, which is a Facebook dedicated Facebook group dedicated to AAC, definitely join. Um, you guys have a really amazing file section that I've definitely that be my billboard. It's in the file. Have you looked in the file section? That should be my billboard. Exactly. <laughs> file section. <laughs> I love it. No, and the file section is amazing. And I feel like you, yes, that should be your billboard, Catherine, because every post I see, you're you're just like referring people to the file section. <laughs> I might be showing my age here, but I want to always put that meme that's like, it's in there. Does anybody remember the Prego commercials? It's in there. <laughs> yeah. oh, I love it. I love it. Um, so Catherine, thank you for all the work that you do. You know, obviously this, this PhD and this, this study is really valuable and all the work that you, you know, do on the side for AAC for the SLP. Um, you're amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Well, thank you very much. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Catherine Dorney. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will talk to you guys next week. Hi, I'm Mei-Ling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.